Hey, science nerds, welcome back to another episode of McMaster Undergraduate Research Society's um, podcast, where we explore research in various science disciplines at McMaster University to try and bridge the gap between Canada's most research intensive university and the new generation of science leaders it's fostering. So today we're joined by Dr. Hines, an assistant prof here at Mac who studies bacteriophages. He completed his postdoc in the lab of Dr. Sylvain Moignot in Quebec, where he studied bacteriophages and anti-CRISPRs before he joined us here at McMaster in 2017 and established his lab in the Foncombe Family Institute for Digestive Health Research, where he focuses on identifying, characterizing, and manipulating phage biology. Dr. Hines has also been a member of the Canadian Society of Microbiologists for the last 13 years and has also recently founded Phage Canada, which fosters collaboration between a community of 40 research teams involved in phage research. He also holds, in my opinion, one of the most well-designed and welcoming lab sites of all the PIs here at Mac. So, hi, Dr. Hines. Um, we're so happy you're able to find uh, some time to talk to us today. And um, we want to start start things off by getting to know you a bit better. So, would you be able to share a little bit about your journey to research, um, what your specific interests are, and how you ended up as a PI here at Mac? So, my journey. I'm I'm intensely aware of, of my privilege. I'm an apple that didn't fall far from the tree. Um, I, my father is a microbiologist, and I was washing dishes in a lab at a very young age. And remember the smell of E. coli growing on agar from that very young age. Um, my father tried very hard to ensure that I didn't wind up doing biology or microbiology. And, uh, and you know, at the university level was actually insisting that I go to chemistry or physics, one of those departments where they actually like their students, which may paint him out to be a bit of a crotchety old man. Um, that's not entirely fair. Uh, you know, within the University of Calgary, the biology department is a fairly large cohort probably 95% of whom wanted to go to med school, you know, who didn't want to, to be in that biology program uh, specifically. They just saw it as a stepping stone. Uh, the people who were in chemistry were, were a much smaller group. The people who were in physics were a much smaller group who wanted to be there. And it was much easier to get into a lab to do research, to do those kinds of things, because you weren't competing with the hundreds of pre-med students who all thought that this was going to help them get into, into medical school. So I ignored my father's advice, and I continue to ignore my father's advice when I should know better at this time, uh, and, and wound up eventually working on stuff fairly closely related to what he does. Um, he, he wasn't working on phages, but I think he gave a phage lecture just two weeks ago in his virology class that he's now taken over. So maybe maybe the apple is now, or the tree is nearing the apple. I don't know how I'm gonna butcher that metaphor. Um, so, you know, I had, I had a lot of advantages both in, in finding a thesis placement, in, in working in a lab at the, at the end of my first year summer, um, in, in, you know, name recognition within the Canadian Society of Microbiologists, even knowing that that society existed and was hosting a conference, um, you know, that was through, through my father. Um, and, and I'm immensely grateful for it because I'm very happy with where I've wound up and been able to do that. But I'm also intensely aware that I have been helped along the way immensely by these kinds of advantages and try to take that into account in, in my who I bring into the lab and that they may not have those expertise and, and maybe look for something a little bit different and give some chances to people who are a little bit not me, perhaps, uh, as that goes. But I, I mean, you mentioned 13 years of attending the Canadian Society of Microbiologists. I attended my first meeting instead of walking the stage at graduation. They were simultaneous. 
and you know basically two halls away because it was happening in the summer at the University of Calgary and it was at that session that I attended that I met my eventually to be PhD supervisor and you know just gave a great talk and I was really excited and went to go talk to him and I was very glad I didn't walk the stage it was it was a uh, it was good and somewhat similarly a year or two later in my master's uh, I attended a phenomenal meeting and Sylvain Wanneau gave a talk on CRISPRs and I said when I finish my PhD I'm going to work with this guy and I'm going to and I'm going to do something cool and I've got some ideas and I wrote them down and by the time I came to go talk to him about them, most of those had been published by other labs, but some some had not. And uh, and I got a chance to sort of live out this idea that he'd sparked at a talk he'd given in you know five years before I ever really met him, uh, and got to got to chase that as well. Um, I've wandered and meandered here a little bit, but I think you were asking you know how it, how it all came to to McMaster, and so. Uh, McMaster was very much looking for, or within the Farncombe Institute, which focuses on digestive health um, in humans and, and the mammalian gut, uh, within the Division of Medicine, they do a lot of work on the microbiome, the bacteria that will influence your daily life, help you digest, recover from all sorts of things, and are, play a major role in, in many, many conditions. In fact, the more we look into it, a surprising number of conditions, and really the idea there was they knew they wanted someone who had phage expertise, who worked with bacterial viruses, because they had the people working on the gut, they had the people working on the microbes. And if you look at the sort of nesting Russian doll system, well, the next smallest thing that could be having uh, effects up that cascade would be the phages. And they, and they wanted to bring in that expertise. So they, they had a very specific call. And so, you know, that was a, a huge benefit to me because um, I had this phase training, which very few people had, and still quite, quite, uh, quite rare because phage were all the rage in the 50s and sort of faded a little bit out of popularity. And so I would say that even many virology courses just stopped talking about them altogether in the early 90s. And so you wound up with the generations of scientists, you know, from the 90s to the, you know, early 2010, maybe, that just didn't get exposed to these at all. And while I had been, so I was one of those few people who still had that carryover expertise, you know, that reached back 30 years because of some of the exposure that I'd had as an undergrad and because of what I'd sought out in my master's and PhD. So the list of candidates they could interview for these jobs was not all that long, uh, which, which is why I was able to rise somewhere near to the actually getting interviewed stage and, um, and them choosing me. Uh, you know, applying for an academic job at the stage is, is terrifying. You hear many cases where there's two or 300 applicants. And if you're not in the ones that get interviewed, you don't hear anything. So you don't get the feedback and iteration. You're just firing CVs off in the distance. So um, get, knowing that the interview list and the candidate list was much shorter, getting a chance to, to put boots on the ground and see the facilities and come up with ideas that really worked for McMaster, uh, exploiting some of the infrastructure at McMaster and the experience here was, was a very different process and, and a lot of fun. And thankfully they hired me and I've been able to do a lot of things that I would not have been able to do anywhere else. So McMaster has been very kind to me. No, it's, yeah, th thank you. Thank you for that introduction. Uh, you definitely didn't meander at all. Um, I wanted to actually ask, so, so you mentioned that, that your dad tried to kind of incline you away from molecular biology and uh, maybe a little bit more toward chemistry and physics um, for, for, for um, I guess, the pre-med reason. But what, what drew you to like 
um, be passionate about molecular biology or, or phage specifically? Was it, was it an interest in the gut microbiome or, or was it something else? Um, so my first work experience in a lab, because I had those connections, was microbiology. And I really did appreciate the fact that it was a kind of biology that you could do, but that you could do on timescales that were okay for someone as impatient as I was. You could inoculate your culture and the next day you'd have it to do your experiment. You could do your experiment and the next day you would see the result. You know, you might have to sleep on it, but you wouldn't have to wait eight months for your clinical trial to unblind or six years for the elephants to have their kids and whatever it is you were studying. It was, it was much faster paced as a, as a reductionist tool for asking questions for curiosity. And that's sort of the reason that, that microbiology became the hotbed for molecular biology in the first place. Why did people start studying all of these things in E. coli specifically or bacteria in general? Really it was because it replicated quickly. It was easy to grow. You could get populations of billions in, in no time at all. And you could detect events that were incredibly infrequent, things that happen one in a billion, one in a hundred billion. You can find these things with, with bacteria. And very similarly, people were working with bacteria. And then in the 50s, uh, this major push towards what became the American phage group, uh, a lot of Nobel laureates and the like, all of them learned their trade with phages because in my mind, they're basically super bacteria. They're replicating even faster. You get higher numbers, you do it even quicker. They have smaller genomes. Um, and, and so you, you get a little bit of everything you were getting with bacteria but just a little bit more, a little bit faster, a little finer tuned, you know, evolution at, at a scale that makes it much easier to follow as a human trying to play around with it. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. I can definitely see what, um, kind of what drives you towards bacteriophage research. Um, I wanna go back to something you mentioned earlier. Um, I know that you said, you know, phage research kind of boosted in the 1900s and then kind of faded out in the 1940s, 50s. Um, why do you think it's important to kind of focus on phage research again? So I'll, I'll clarify that. There's there's two two narratives about phage research. So phage bacteriophages, these viruses were discovered. Um, I mean, and, and really discovered in sort of 1914 to 1917. So we're talking, you know, 10 years before anyone discovered antibiotics. Uh, and the initial focus on them was this was something that could kill bacteria. We can, we can leverage this for therapy. You know, there's, there's a novel uh, by Sinclair Lewis called Aerosmith, which is the science fiction of 1920s, where they're like, we can treat everything with phages on. Uh, you know, that's what people were thinking and reading in popular culture, that phages could do this and you could buy phages in the pharmacy, you know, in the 30s. And, and then antibiotics came around and that aspect of phage research very much did die off in the West. It was preserved in, in the, the Soviet states and the Soviet republics for a variety of reasons, but antibiotics are just astounding. Um, you know, we take them for granted, we shouldn't, but even if you acknowledge all the good they've done, their toxicity is so low, they're, you know, complex to produce, but not that complex. Um, you know, our bodies tolerate them so well. They're so ridiculously effective on such a broad range of bacteria. They are, you would never have predicted in nature that it was something that useful for humans. It's just astounding when you think of it. Uh, and phages are a lot trickier to use. So the, so the idea of using them therapeutically faded out pretty quickly once you had penicillin. It was just, it was too good to pass up on. But it was around that time that, that there was a real interest in figuring out, you know, the, the, the heritable material 
they didn't know it was DNA yet. That was an experiment that was done with phages for the reasons I was talking about. You know, this explosion of interest in molecular biology with the phages at the, at the bedrock of that, that was just as they were dying off in interest from the standpoint of, of um, therapy. So this the, almost the golden age of molecular biology uh, and definitely the golden age of phage research was when nobody cared about them as therapeutics at all. Uh, you know, 1950s to, to late 1960s, early 1970s, discovering things like restriction enzymes, that DNA was a genetic material, that DNA replication is semi-conservative. All of these were experiments. Uh, even though the first genome maps were done with phages, uh, find, deciding that, that a base was, you know, that you could find out what individual bases was, was done with phages, uh, that, that the triplet nature of the DNA code, that was done with phages. So these phenomenal experiments, all of which were done with phages. And so there was a huge interest from that standpoint, but there was a departure after that to thinking, okay, well, we've got the building blocks, let's move on to more and I'll put in quotation marks, I don't know how many people can see the video, uh, into more complex organisms. And so, you know, away from this model system thinking, okay, we've mined it, we understand the building blocks, let's move on and apply that to eventually humans and all those other things. And so the fact that there wasn't much interest in therapy and that a lot of the people who had built the knowledge on the building blocks were moving away from phages, that's what's really, really drove people away um, and you could start seeing the money drying up and, and a lot less interest. So why do I think it really is important? Um, you know, the simplest answer, which is not necessarily what drives me day to day, is that we have run out of antibiotics. We've known that for a long, long time. And these are the world's you know, they're, they're optimized for the killing of bacteria in a lot of conditions. And even when they aren't, they have the tools to kill the bacteria. So they've developed enzymes that are specifically designed to kill them. They're a great place to go looking for the tools that we want in the warfare against, against bacteria. And there's definitely an acknowledgement of that now. Um, and that acknowledgement has been rising for, for quite a long time. And there are many case studies that are quite prominent. Um, and that have brought this sort of back into the, the, the eye of the general public, that some of them may well know what you're talking about if you start talking about phage therapy, um, and that there are now clinical trials, uh, reasonably well-designed Western clinical trials underway or recruiting, building on some of the failures of past clinical trials with phage therapy. I, I think that's an easy answer to say, okay, therapy is really one of the reasons that we want to go there. And I think that's true. But I also think that the initial reason to, to explore molecular biology with them hasn't faded. Uh, I think you know a lot of the, the real curiosity that I have about the world around me and about these invisible systems, phage are still the best way to answer it. And they're constantly surprising us with these absolutely amazing results of this arms race between bacteria and, and phages. So it doesn't always have to be because the phage or the, or the bacteria is one or the other is going to die, but there's an interplay at this interface that is just absolutely fascinating. And when you start looking at it, you start finding things like, um, I, I just finished a, a lecture in, in Biochem 3, MI3, a set of four lectures, but the last slide that I ended on was a discovery two years ago that there are phages that build a protein-based nucleus. I mean, this is, to me, this is amazing that there is a structure where DNA replication happens inside of it and they send out mRNA, not quite mRNA, but RNA outside of that proteinaceous nucleus structure so that the protein synthesis happens outside and then gets reimported. This is, you know, it's not related to a nucleus. 
it's not genetically related to a nucleus, but it's another case in which this compartmentalization has evolved in something that arguably people don't say is alive. So there's just so much genetic diversity in phages um, and, and so much of that interplay between them and bacteria that I still think they're the best tool to understand bacteria. And I still think they're the place where you're going to find the absolute coolest things in nature. Thank you for that. Um, I have to say, before I go to my follow-up, you know what I always find fascinating talking to any scientist is they seem to know so much about the history of their field. Um, but as an undergrad, I feel like we don't learn that. So definitely something as an aspiring scientist, I'm looking to learn, forward to learning all this background information and being able to talk about it one day on my own too. Um, it's like a, it's like a, it's like a history that you have. It's and it, like I mean, we, a part of uh, it's obviously part of your passion. So that's really cool. But I mean, I wanted to say um, since you talked about like the relevance today of, of phages to antimicrobial resistance and, and that area of research, do you think that like phage therapies will, will ever replace um, anti like antibiotic-based therapies um, to treat infection? Or uh, do you think that, that that area shows promise at all? So again, antibiotics are amazing. And I cannot understate this uh, or cannot overstate this. They're just, you know, a patient comes in with a fever, you don't need to know which bacterium is in there, you don't need to know what it's causing, there are broad spectrum antibiotics you can give this person, the efficacy is ridiculously good. Um, you know, no, phages will not replace bacteria or antibiotics in that sense. Antibiotics are just too easy to use and too quick. But in situations where they're not working, you need something that isn't as good or isn't as easy to use or is more expensive to, to administer. And that's when you start looking at solutions like phages. Um, I definitely think that phages can work. Um, a lot of the barriers to, to why they didn't work in past clinical trials or in, in work done in the 20s and 30s back when they were popularized, a lot of those hurdles have been cleared. We know these phages are pretty good at killing bacteria in nature and we can play around with those systems. So it's repurposing them specifically as therapeutics is definitely possible. Uh, a lot of the barriers are, there are sort of regulatory barriers, there are, there are cost barriers, there, there aren't really incentives. I mean, people are used to paying six or seven bucks for a course of antibiotics. And if you came in with uh, an infection and we had time to do the proper phage therapy thing as I envision it, you'd really have to take the bug out of that person, culture it, find out exactly what it is, test it against a library of thousands of phages that you have or hundreds of phages to find the ones that seem to do the best job and then administer that and then follow that treatment for a few for a little while to make sure the bugs aren't becoming resistant to the phage. And then if that does happen, you iterate on this cocktail that you've, you've made and re-administer it. That becomes a, a process of personalized medicine and personalized medicine is absurdly expensive. You know, it requires someone to follow your case that closely. It requires additional time. Uh, you know, there are really neat cases of personalized medicine like CART cell therapy or CAR-Ts um, that, that have been very in interesting, but those have existed in a space against anti-cancer drugs that cost $20,000, $30,000 for treatment. So there's more of an incentive where people are saying, okay, well, I'm willing to pay $40,000 for, for this kind of treatment. I'm willing to pay that, or the system is willing to. But when you're comparing against a seven or eight dollar antibiotic treatment, it's really hard to see for any company that wants to drive this innovation or, or anyone that's thinking in the sort of shorter term, why you would start to work on something where the treatment might cost $2,000 when you have an eight dollar treatment. 
And the answer obviously is that eventually you're not going to have that $8 treatment and you still want something to save your life, whether it's $2,000 or $3,000. But, you know, you can see how that makes a really big barrier at the initial stage, just how cheap and how easy antibiotics are to use. Yeah, it's definitely interesting to see kind of the interplay between antibiotics and um, phage therapies from kind of an industrial standpoint, because um, a lot of the times as scientists, we don't really look at the money aspect, but it's cool to get that um, view as well. I did kind of want to shift into more of your research that you did in your postdoc. Um, I know that we've been talking a little bit more specifically about bacteriophages in general, but um, I know you did a lot of work on anti-CRISPR research. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that and its importance in genetic engineering and bacteriophage research in general. Yeah, I have to make sure I don't launch into a 50 minute lecture here. Yeah, so for those looking for more, sign up for Biochem 3MI3 every year. I do a series on these things, but um, many of you may have heard of CRISPR as a genome editing technology, but not realize that this is a bacterial immune system. It's a way that bacteria protect themselves against phages. And it's an adaptive immune system. So it essentially updates its affinity based on sequences it picks up from bacterial viruses from these phages. So if you get infected by a phage, there's a chance that you'll pick up a small sequence of DNA. And every time you see that again, you'll cut it with your Cas9 nuclease, which is the, the, the nuclease that is used for genome editing. And the reason that that made such a good genome editing tool is to give you this, this reprogrammable enzyme where you could give it an RNA and it would find that same sequence in DNA and cut that same sequence. So instead of having to invent a new restriction enzyme, a new enzyme every time you wanted to cut a different DNA sequence, you could just take this one and feed it a different RNA because it was in nature, it, it has an affinity based on what memory the system has. So you're essentially just cheating its memory and programming it towards new targets. So that makes it a very, very useful um, tool because you can pick any sequence and cut it. Well, you couldn't do that before. And you can do it quite easily and with very high affinity because it has a fairly large recognition sequence. So it's unlikely to cut in lots of other places. Um, I initially didn't believe that anti-CRISPRs existed for a couple of reasons, which is just me proving how wrong I am even within my field. Uh, and and a lab at the University of Toronto proved me wrong and I was delighted to be proven wrong and, and discovered some anti-CRISPRs. So these are proteins made by phages that are designed to bypass the CRISPR system. So essentially in any arms race between phages and bacteria, you're gonna find some sort of system to bypass the system, to bypass the system, to bypass the system at infinitum because these things have been co-evolving for billions of years. Um, but anti-CRISPRs in general, the reason that they were so sought after wasn't just because they're a cool thing that happens in nature, but it's that um, they have real use in that from a genome editing standpoint. And I like to say that there's, there's two stories about that. One is the mustachioed villain, evil scientist, who wants to use CRISPR to create a gene drive that's gonna run around and kill everyone with blue eyes and designs this thing to find the gene with blue eyes and cut their DNA and dis distributes it with whatever system. This is obviously horribly far-fetched, but the idea here is if this could happen, you would wanna make sure that there was an off switch that, that 
at some point, James Bond could find a cure and administer it and stop the CRISPR system from cutting and save everybody. And, you know, it sounds ridiculous, but there is real talk of using gene drives, for instance, to cure or to eliminate malaria in mosquitoes, to get these, these CRISPR-based systems to spread throughout these populations and eliminate malaria, which would be an enormous change for the planet and for world health, but with who knows what, uh, what repercussions. And so, you know, if you are going to do that, I, I would say that there probably is an argument that you should have an off switch that you could deploy, that you could stop the system from propagating and, and, and cutting. But that's, that's the science fiction answer for now. The, the real answer um, is that the CRISPR-Cas system actually, it, it's very good at cutting its target, but when you're working with enormous genomes like, like humans, for instance, at least compared to the phages that I work with, um, when these molecules are floating around, after they cut the target that you really want them to, there's a chance that they might find some other sites that are close enough or, or not too far off. And this is called off-target activity. So essentially, you want a, a break in this specific gene so you can trigger a repair mechanism and cure cystic fibrosis or, or something like that. But unfortunately, there are maybe 15 or 20 other sequences in the genome that if that Cas9 molecule sticks around for long enough, it might start binding to, it might eventually cut. And then you've done a little bit of damage elsewhere and you can't predict how that's gonna be repaired. And so that level of off-target activity isn't really a problem from the standpoint uh, of, of genome editing to create new strains that we want you know, in the lab. You could generate 20 new lines of maize and then sequence them and check which one worked well and use that one. But if you're gonna use this as a treatment or you're gonna use this on human embryos or anything like that, you, you can't. You can't you know, sort of make a hundred and see which one worked. Um, so you really want to ensure that when you're doing this, it's not only precisely targeted, but that once it's done its job, you can turn the system off. So it's not going to go on to these secondary or tertiary targets for which it has less affinity. So the idea is you give it a window to work and then you, you pulse in something that can turn it off. You find a way to block this system. And so, I mean, that wasn't the reason that I was looking for anti-CRISPRs. Um, it, it's the patents that got filed afterwards, but it is the idea um, that once we had discovered these anti-CRISPRs, we were really thinking, okay, the, would these be a decent fit for that kind of model? Now, I do want to mention, because I'm talking about something of which I hold to patents, just so people will be suspicious of my financial incentives here. Um, I, in discovering these anti-CRISPRs, I worked with a company called DuPont, uh, they were wonderful collaborators, and the initial search didn't start for anti-CRISPRs, but these companies like to patent things while we like to publish. We were able to do both. I thoroughly expect never to see a penny from any of these patents, even though I hold them, um, because there are, there are thousands of anti-CRISPRs out there, millions, and in fact, that's an underestimate. So anyone who really wants to find one can find one now. They know how to do it. And so why would they use the two that I happened to discover in my postdoc unless there was something really, really good about those? I might argue that there is or that there isn't, but I'm not trying to sell people on the value of anti-CRISPRs here um, from any financial standpoint. Um, I, I honestly never expect to see a penny from these two patents. Uh, uh, no, by the way, nice, nice disclaimer. But um, I, I mean, I did have to ask, why did you, why did you uh, originally think that anti-CRISPRs didn't exist? Um, well, because even experts can be very, very wrong. Um, one, of, one of the neat things about CRISPR systems is that they have really high specificity. So that means that, um, that if it recognizes a 30 base pair sequence in the phage, and that phage happens to mutate one of those bases, 
the phage bypasses the system. And from an evolutionary standpoint, that's a really cheap cost to sort of bypass the system. You know, you're going to get these random mutations in phages all the time. So when we challenge um, in, in Sivan's lab, when we challenge the bacterium with the phage, we get about one in a million bacteria that survives. And they survive because they have this adaptive immune system. But when we challenge the resistant bacterium with more phage, about one in a million phages just gets through. And because it had already had a mutation in that sequence that, that the memory was programmed or primed to get to. And so I thought, you know, that's so easy to bypass that evolutionarily speaking, I don't know that if, if I have a very constrained genome like phages do, do I waste 500, 600 base pairs on a system that, that gets me through 80% of the time instead of one in a million? Like, I know those numbers sound like a very, very big difference, but does it really matter on that evolutionary scale? And there were a couple of reasons why I, you know, once I was proven wrong, I was able to justify with hindsight why I was wrong and why I was making these wrong assumptions. But really, my, my first assumption was these didn't exist just because they didn't need to. Um, we had plenty of ways for the phages to get through this system without having to have a dedicated protein to do it. Um, but as I said, I was completely wrong, and, and I'm very happy to be wrong. To hear that, I also did want to say I definitely did not know that there were so many anti-CRISPRs that existed, but I, I guess it makes sense in retrospect because it's uh, just a representation of like genetic diversity um, as a mechanism of resistance, right? Yeah. Go ahead, Mira. Yeah, I was just going to say it's like super cool to see just how many different mechanisms there are that like phages use to just evade these immunity strategies in bacteria. Um, that's like really interesting to hear about. Um, so thank you for sharing that. I think we wanted to move into kind of your current research. I know you've kind of moved on from anti-CRISPRs and are looking a lot at uh, temperate phages um, and kind of just studying them and seeing how you can manipulate them. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that um, and if you're looking into ways of manipulating these lysis lysogeny decisions for therapeutic purposes at all. Yeah, so some terminology that I'll introduce because the, the listener might not be up to speed, as up to speed as you guys are. Um, so we've, we've talked a little bit about that arms race between bacteria and phages, and that you know the phages have ways of bypassing that resistance, and the bacteria have a way of, of uh, updating their resistance. And, and this this has been going on for a long time. Um, that's one way of looking at this interaction that's very antagonistic. That phages are trying to wipe out bacteria, and bacteria are trying to wipe out phages. But obviously, that hasn't happened. Phages have persisted for so long, and that's because phages actually don't have an incentive to wipe out their hosts because then they would go extinct. They're entirely dependent on them. So phages actually have lots of other tricks that are nowhere near as aggressive um, that to sort of be maintained within a population for much longer time points. And some of them are, are even akin to sustainable farming, you know, get into this bacterial population and kill 70% of it, but don't kill 100% because you want it to regrow so that you can then go and kill another 70%. You know, it sounds callous and awful, but it's, it's what we do. You know, we farm and, and we try to do the same thing, not over deplete the soil. We try to do this in a way that everything will grow back so that we can kill it again. And, and phage, careful not to anthropomorphize too much, but seem to have systems to ensure that they don't wipe out their hosts. And one of the ones that has been known for the, the longest is that they don't just have to go into their host and kill them. They can go into their host and, and lie dormant. Um, and you can think of this as analogous to retroviruses, for instance, uh, you know, essentially integrating themselves into a genome and lying dormant for some long period of time until something 
triggers them to wake up. Um, and this is actually a good strategy for the phage as well, because once it's dormant, every time the bacterial cell divides, each bacterial daughter cell carries the phage in it. You've essentially sort of, you know, you may be asleep, but you're still replicating. You're just not going through that explosive system and, and you can have a more symbiotic relationship with the bacteria that you're residing in. And um, so this, this cycle is called lysogeny. It generates something that can generate lysis. It's old terminology from the twenties. Um, but so this dormancy cycle is a very, very important part of phages uh, and arguably I would certainly argue that most phages undergo this dormancy and most of them do it most of the time. And certainly within the human gut, which is a really, really dense bacterial population, it seems to be the favored phage strategy. Uh, but you know, you could pick almost any bacterium that you've worked with and find by sequencing it that there's you know a couple of dormant phages in it. Certainly more than 50% of bacteria sequenced to date have active dormant phages that, that could still wake up already in them. Um, but even the lab strain of E. coli that people work with all the time was originally cured of one of these. So this E. coli K12 that everybody uses was initially discovered and had a phage called Lambda in it. And then they worked to get rid of it to make it slightly easier to use. Uh, but it has the remnants of seven or eight other phage infections within its genome. So you can find phage genes at like eight different places in that E. coli strain's genome, which is just an element and it preserves those genes because those genes are good for it. The, the phage has a vested interest in the survival of its host once it's gone dormant in that host. So we, we were very interested uh, in temperate phages because I think they're more of the real ecology of phages. Um, you know, a lot of the research happens with these explosive viruses that can kill off an entire E. coli culture in 10 minutes, because if you're growing a tube of E. coli and you come back to it 10 minutes later and the E. coli is all dead, you notice and you go looking for something. But if you grow an E. coli tube and it grew 1% slower today, you didn't notice and you never went looking for the phage that just went dormant or, or gave it a little fitness boost or did something symbiotic. You know, this is the same thing in humans. Someone starts bleeding from their eyes and ears, we go looking for the virus that causes this and, and we find that virus. But we're carrying lots and lots of viruses in us all the time, some dormant, some integrated into our genome, some that are just asymptomatic because sort of the optimal virus is the one that can spread as well as it can without overly damaging its host under most circumstances. And so I, I see that as, you know, the, the, the freakishly destructive ones are probably just the tip of the iceberg, the easiest to find because they're so destructive. But the vast majority are spending most of their time making sure they don't completely eliminate their, their bacterial hosts. So we were working entirely or really focused on temperate phages. They're very common in the gut. And, and I, as I mentioned, I'm working within that environment in the Farncombe Institute and uh, sort of got to show off to someone at one point and, and they had a collection of, of bacteria. And I just said, okay, well, you've got these 96 pseudomonas strains just let me filter them and spot them back on, on their own strains, and I'll show you that there's tons of phages in there. And sure enough, all these pseudomonas strains all have dormant phages in them, or almost all have dormant phages in them. And so I was basically saying, look, all these clinical isolates that you guys have gotten from patients have phages already in them. Isn't that cool? And, and the person naturally asked, oh, like, can we use these for therapy? And I'm like, well, no, they'll go to sleep on the job. Like most of these phages will get into their host and, and some percentage of the time will go to sleep in there and then protect that cell from other phages and give it a fitness benefit. So maybe you don't wanna go using these. And, and 
you know, the person was obviously disappointed and, and said, like, is there anything we can do to make these useful? And I think, well, they're so cool. They are useful, but I, I get what you mean. Uh, you know, can we use these in therapy? And, and then it was just sort of putting together some pieces about some things that I already knew about phages and thinking uh, a lot of these dormant phages will wake up when the bacterial cell they're in is, is highly stressed. And uh, I tend to liken this to abandoning a sinking ship. If you're dormant, if you're sleeping in a ship and then suddenly the alarms go off, you wake up and you find a lifeboat. And in this case, the phage is mostly dormant, quiescent in this cell. And if you damage that cell's DNA, it turns on a repair pathway known as the SOS repair pathway. And that is a trigger for phages to wake up. So if, if there's a phage dormant in your cell and you expose it to UV or you give it something like mitomycin C or a drug like ciprofloxacin, which is a DNA damaging agent by binding to the DNA gyrase and top Y isomerase, you wind up with this stressed cell and the phage decides to abandon ship. It wakes up, it starts hijacking the cell, it bursts, it thinks, you know, this cell's going down, I'm not going down with it, let me go find another cell to fall asleep in maybe. And so it was, this has been known since the 20s that you stress some of these cells and you get more phages out of them. And it was how you found a lot of the early phages because most of them were asleep in cells. Um, but, but we sort of had this idea of saying, well, if you wanted to use these phages that fall asleep on the job and you were giving the patient antibiotics anyway, maybe every time the phage fell asleep, it would just be instantly woken up because you already have these antibiotics that are damaging the DNA. So maybe if you pick the right antibiotics, the fact that these phages have a tendency to fall asleep on the job wouldn't matter at all, because as soon as they fell asleep, they would wake up, or maybe they wouldn't even be able to fall asleep in a cell that is that stressed. And so you'd get the benefits of your antibiotic if it's working, and if it starts to fail and the bugs are a little bit more resistant, they should still be stressed enough that the phage can finish them off and doesn't risk going dormant because, because the cell is still in that stress mode. And you know, did a, did a little pilot experiment, worked really well, and handed this project off to, to a phenomenal uh, two graduate students, really, who got to work on it. And, and they pushed it far beyond what I thought we could do with it. And, and they really showed that in these situations in the lab, we can completely eradicate bacteria. Um, you know, I, I thought, so if you're, if you're using a phase that falls asleep on the job, you, you're, you're going to get, you might kill off 90% of the bacteria in that test tube, which sounds good, but is, is rubbish. Killing 90% is one log. And in my phage world, a log is nothing. Um, and if you use antibiotic, you can stop growth. You can kill these bacteria. We know that. But if you use half of the antibiotic needed to kill these bugs, you're, you might maybe, maybe kill 99% of them or at least stop them from growing. You might be in that kind of situation. That's what we were with, with the drug we were using. But if you combine the two, we got an eight log reduction. Um, so, you know, it wasn't just one times two or one times three, the multiplicative effect of these two components by themselves. They really were synergizing when we, when we applied them together. So you, you take the phage and you, you give it the, the coffee it needs to stay awake. And either the coffee kills the bugs or the phage kills the bugs because they're awake. Uh, not literally coffee in this case, antibiotics. We did actually try with coffee at some point because we thought maybe coffee might work and wouldn't that story write itself. Uh, we didn't just start by trying coffee, but we had another screen where we were hoping that coffee might potentially wake up phages along with lots of other compounds we tried to play with. Um, so yeah, essentially from, from that standpoint, we've really been looking at ways in which we can manipulate whether phages choose to go dormant or choose to wake up 
so that potentially we can rescue all these fascinating temperate phages, these, these you know, phages that fall asleep on the job that are much easier to find because they're already there in the bugs that we're looking at, um, but potentially make them useful from a therapeutic standpoint. Thank you for kind of going over that in depth um, and explaining um, like how lysogeny lysis cycles work. Um, it's always super cool to kind of see you know, you have like antibiotics and you also have bacteriophages and a lot of times you look at them separately, but it's cool to see how they can work together um, and how we can manipulate them into kind of working together. Um, there, are, there are other kinds of synergy, which are, are kind of interesting from that standpoint too, like not just with tempered phages, but if you imagine that the phage needs a certain thing on the surface of the cell to get in, and that thing is also something that's conferring antibiotic resistance, you, you're, you've got a, a catch 22 for the bug. And there's, there's a couple of examples of this in nature. So, you know, the phage gets in through an efflux pump where the bug is also pumping out drugs. So if it gets rid of the, the, the pump, then the phage can't infect it and it's safe, but it's gonna die to the drug. And if it keeps that and still pumps out the drug, it's gonna die to the phage. So you can, if you know enough about the system, set up catch-22s where there isn't a way out for the bacterium, where, where you're designing this intelligently in such a way that uh, it becomes really, really hard to get resistance to both at the same time. Yeah, it's definitely really interesting to look at that kind of stuff. Um, and, you know, it seems like, you know, bacteria and phages are always kind of in this fight. Um, so it's cool how many different um, mechanisms can interplay. Uh, I guess moving on a little bit from your current research, we wanted to talk about kind of collaboration in the science community in general, just because you did mention you collaborated with a bunch of labs and these projects. And we know that you started up Phage Canada, which is kind of this scientific community of different bacteriophage researchers. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about why you started this community and what prompted you to start it. So Phage Canada, I, I can give the honest answer or the, or the, 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 the speech that I normally give. But the honest answer is at one point I read a CBC article uh, citing a phage researcher in Canada and it said so-and-so, one of six phage researchers in Canada, and I said, that's not right. <laughs> There's more of us than that. So, you know, my pride injured, uh, you, you know, I, I wanted to, to make sure that that kind of thing didn't really happen and that we acknowledged that there are now a lot more people working on this, a lot of people hired in the, in the last four or five years. Um, that were brought in because it was a missing expertise in a lot of universities. So there's a, a fair number of early career researchers that maybe the, the, the article wasn't aware of. And so now hopefully we never see another article that says, you know, one of four, one of six people in Canada working on this. But the other aspect of that is that if, um, you know, in addition to fostering more exchange of ideas and at the time it was mid-COVID and, and really getting a chance for students to present when they didn't really have the venues because it was just at the start and a lot of conferences hadn't gone online so we were able to, to do a, a sort of online conference that really let the graduate students share their research something that they would normally be able to do in that season um, but you know if if for instance um, we're ever going to get to the, the, the regulatory stage where we can administer phage therapy. There needs to be a bit more of a unified front. We need to be aware of each other's research and we need to be pushing together for unified goals. It can't just be, you know, 43 different research groups across industry and, and government and um, academia 
all giving their own stories because then it's then it's 43 quackbots. Uh, that, that's what it is. And so if we have a bit more communication on that front and we can really get together on the standards and the things that we're asking the regulatory agencies for, then we have a chance of moving this forward faster. And, and uh, you know, if the government or the regulatory agencies have a point of contact where they know they can reach out to the community as a whole and get feedback on these kinds of things, again, the whole process can move faster. Um, right now, when phase therapy is administered in, in the States, for instance, it's, it's based on something called an emergency investigational new drug approval. So you sort of file for emergency use for this, for this one case, for this one administration. And they've, they've tried to streamline it and they're working on ways to do it. And Canada's sort of modeling their way around that uh, to, to, or modeling their way on the US system to say that this is how they might regulate it. But it's, it's not a long-term solution. It's a, here's how you can get the, the ethical approval to do a case study. It's not how do you make this work both financially and regulatory in, in a longer framework. And other countries have managed to do a better job of that. Uh, notoriously, Belgium uh, has, has changed the regulatory framework of how phage therapy is administered to make it much easier globally. And so, yeah, but by having a community presenting a united front, we can potentially move this forward faster than this haphazard way. And we, you know, we all get emails regularly from people who are looking for some alternative when, when the drugs fail to work. And, and sometimes it's, you know, for themselves, sometimes it's for a family member, sometimes for, it's for a pet. Uh, you know, these, their, their, their vet says that none of the antibiotics work and, and this ear infection is just never going to go away and, and it's causing discomfort to their pet. And they're just thinking, I heard of phage therapy, could it work here? And, you know, there are situations in which we, we can potentially help. We, we have a process, you know, where we, we have some clinicians we can talk to. We have a bit of a network. And for most cases, we can't do anything if antibiotics could work. So really, the, the first step is to completely rule out that any antibiotics can work. But then we can reach out and some, maybe I might not have the right phages. Maybe um, John Dennis at the University of Alberta has the right phages or has the right expertise to do this. And, you know, there's a, there's a, a company or a, a startup called Phage Directory that also took the same approach. Uh, you know, a couple of case studies, the way that people got the right phages for the case studies was asking on Twitter, saying, hey, does anyone have a good library of acinetobacter phages? We got a patient, like somebody help us here. That, that's not how you move this field forward. That doesn't really paint a very good image of a unified front that's got their act together. And so Phage Directory did, a, did an amazing thing in really pushing together sort of these combined directories of who has the phages and sort of allowing a more reasonable approach to identifying the right phages and putting them in the right hands and putting people in touch. Uh, and, and I think that Phage Canada can do something similar, not replacing what Phage Directory is doing, but making sure that here within Canada, there's people with the experience talking to the regulators, talking to the physicians, knowing which physicians are willing to explore this as a route um, and to guide people to those. So even if you're a phage researcher who's getting bombarded by questions like these, but really has no interest in therapy, you can say, hey, talk to so-and-so, he's the contact in Phage Canada that'll find the clinician that's nearest you that, that is willing to be on board with this, that's willing to give it a shot. And so that's that's the vision for it. Um, how much of it has developed over the last two years since it started or since, since 2020 in uh, early 2020, I guess a year and a half. Some, um, we're, we're still 
you know, all of our labs have been disrupted. All of our lives have been disrupted. There's a lot of pieces that we're still putting together, but that network does still exist uh, and, and is a way that at least people are aware of all the other research groups that we could find that had an interest in phages and, and have started that communication. It's great to hear that you're so passionate about creating that network. I'm definitely going to have to read into a little bit about how Belgium's uh, approval system works. I mean, hopefully we can get to a stage like like maybe what they have. In yeah, Belgian government working is is not three words that you hear very often. I'm allowed to say this. I'm, I'm Belgian uh, by nationality as well as, as some other nationalities. I have to vote in every Belgian election or I get fined. And uh, they have elections very often because they can't form governments worth anything. So generally, it's not the place where you expect innovation in regulatory approval, I would say. Um, but what they did there is something called, they call it the magistral phase and from magistral preparations, um, which in Canada is called compounding pharmacy. And I, you may not be familiar with this concept at all, but if you have you know, a kid who can't take his medication because he's allergic to this component of it, a compounding pharmacy has the license to sort of mix and match other components that can replace. So they can essentially make their own medication as long as it has certain licensed components of active ingredients. Um, sometimes you can imagine it just being like, the kid won't eat the cherry colored one. So this pharmacy is allowed to eat the, the or to add the grape flavor to this mix because it's still gonna be the same kind of drug. That, that's, a, that's a gross oversimplification. It can get much more complicated, but it's essentially saying these are the active ingredients. You can mix and match them in ways that are pre-approved. And so from a phage standpoint saying, okay, once we approve one of your phages for treatment, it can be in combination with any other phages and it makes it much, much easier. You don't need to reseek approval for every phage and every combination and every treatment case. You can say, okay, well, this is an E. coli, a patient sensitive to E. coli phages. I can take these three, which worked last time and this new one that has now been approved and I can mix them and I don't have to go back to the regulatory body and get approval for that. So it gives you a lot more flexibility in how you can mix and match from large libraries of phages uh, in order to treat patients without having to go every single step back to the regulators and say, you know, okay, their bug has gotten resistant. I need to add another phage to this mix. Will you approve it? And then a week later, oh, it's still resistance. I need to add two more phages. Will you approve it? You know, that, that doesn't, again, isn't a very good system going forward. So they, they've been much more flexible in that standpoint. Uh, so one of the last things that we wanted to kind of ask and maybe focus on a bit more is um, since, our, since our podcast is a little bit tailored to undergrads, we kind of wanted to ask about the role of an undergrad in your lab and uh, sort of if, what, what, what kind of projects have undergrads like in the past worked on in your lab? Um, so that's also the question of under what capacity have undergrads worked in my lab. Uh, and the first thing I'll say is that I do not take on volunteers. Uh, I, I believe that, you know, a lot of people can't volunteer. And if you're seeing volunteering as a straight pathway towards a thesis or towards the co-op placement or so on, which many people do. And obviously, you know, I would love for people to work for me for free. That sounds like a great deal. But there's a lot of people who can't. And as soon as you make that part of the pathway, then those people get shut out of labs. You know, it, it's only available to certain socioeconomic classes, to people living in certain areas. 
And so I just think volunteering does a lot of damage to, to creating a level playing field for everyone who should have access to a lab. Uh, so the, the people that work in my lab have been as summer uh, paid fellowships and foreign cone fellowships, things like that, um, and or as uh, project students, three units, six units, but uh, now increasingly because of directives from the department, more and more of the thesis students, they're trying to prioritize those. And uh, had a co-op student once as well. Um, so, so it's you're either getting course credit or being paid for your time in the lab. Your time should be valuable and, and you should be remunerated accordingly. Um, as for the kinds of projects, I mean, my lab is not that old. And so I'm, you know, I'm gonna say like, usually when what I mean is twice, uh, you know, it's, it's a bit of contrast from that standpoint, but um, I like it for the projects to be designed in such a way that uh, that it's the scientific process all the way to the end. Now, that's not to say that students will get to the end. Uh, science is 99% failure, and you're probably not going to get that far. But I'm, I'm not a big fan. I, I know the value of them, but I'm not a big fan of a project in which your only role is, oh, I'm the one collecting the samples, and someone else gets to do the, the manipulation. Or I'm part of this assembly line where I'm doing the step two for grad student who's doing steps three and four. I feel like that there's value in that, and that certainly gets you into the lab and exposed to that culture and doing that. But you don't get that sense of ownership of your own project, of feeling like what you're working on is yours. And I think that that's that's a really important motivation when you're dealing with failure all the time um, to to at least feel like, oh, if I push it first, then then it's mine, and it's it's you know my curiosity I'm pushing forward. Um, so, I mean, I, in, within my lab, all the undergraduates have a graduate student mentor, someone that, that has worked with those bugs before or those experiments or is most familiar with that. But their project is rarely like just a little offshoot of, of the graduate students. Um, and, you know, because no one cares, I mean, this may be news to people, but nobody cares if, if you actually got results at the end of your thesis project, uh, you know, it, it's not, the end evaluation in your grade doesn't have to do with whether you published a paper or you solved this structure or whatever it is. Um, I, I feel a lot more flexibility in assigning projects for undergraduates that maybe are higher risk, that maybe are a you know, bit of a crazy idea, but the techniques will be fun to play around with in the lab. Um, so some examples that I can give that sort of fall into that perspective, uh, we had a project that was just tackling the idea of herd immunity in bacteria, whether herd immunity would matter. Uh, and this was before COVID or mostly before COVID. COVID happened halfway through that project. We felt, you know, but it turns out that we thought we'd be able to detect it, but we didn't have the resolution. We think it's there, but our tools are not sensitive enough. And so we didn't get the answer, but it was a, it was a, a sort of wild, side project that a student could start that wasn't directly tied to any existing graduate students, and that if it had worked would be this really cool story, uh, and that I think the student can get very attached to. Um, right now, we have a student following up on a previous student's work, asking if phages manipulate uh, bacterial motility, whether bacteria swim in one direction or another, how, how do phages mess with that? And the answer is, I'm, I'm sure that out in nature, this happens. I'm absolutely sure. And uh, there's actually some work that shows that it does, but we think that we have, that some of the dormant phages or the phages that are replicating in a host will try and bait other cells next to them. 
so that when the cell pops, when the phage pops out, it will infect the neighboring cells, right? Sort of bait this trap because these viruses can't swim, they can't move, they just float around waiting to bump into a bacterial cell. But if you can bait the phage, the bacteria to come to you, that, that'd be pretty cool. I'm convinced that happens in nature. That's not necessarily good science, being convinced that something happens in nature and going to look for it. Um, but, but is it gonna happen in the strains that we have in the lab with the tools that we have in the lab to detect it? Almost certainly not. And this student doing this is aware of it, but we've got this cool set of techniques to detect it. It's easy enough to understand the concept. Uh, it's fun to play around with. So yeah, those I try to give uh, students projects a little bit like that. Um, you know, student gets some choice. Uh, typically I offer after students have, have been trained in the lab and in what I call a phage boot camp, they then get their pick of three or four or five, depending on the year, projects that they rank. And then I try and make each student with something that they've ranked fairly highly. So it's something that they're attached to. Uh, and these are, you know, one page primers with a, a wild idea. But a lot of the projects in the lab start with these kind of wild ideas. There's a project in the lab that's been very fruitful that started with me explaining to a, a five-year-old something about sugar bugs, which for them were bacteria because they'd been to the dentist and the dentist called them sugar bugs. And this five-year-old asked me, what senses do sugar bugs have? Because they'd learned about sight and smell and taste. So I'm talking to them about bacteria having, yeah, so some are phototactic. Some can, some have, have sight, but not all of them. Some can sense magnets, but not all of them. Almost all of them can smell. Some can sense pressure, you know, talking about these things. The back of my head going like, how many different things can phages sense? Because right now, the only thing that we talk about is that phages can sense stress in the cell through DNA damage. And that's the only thing that is talked about in the context of phages. So we have an entire project in the lab that's basically what, what other compounds and signals from nature can change phage behaviors. That, that came from explaining stuff to a five-year-old, right? You know, I like the idea that, that the, the, the background of a lot of these concepts isn't what does this specific residue do, which may be a fascinating question, or what does this specific protein do, but more, you know, something that I can hopefully explain to one of my kids and they can maybe not roll their eyes at me, although that's unlikely these days. Yeah, it's super cool to see all the creativity behind all the projects you have going on in the lab. I think that's one thing that's super unique about research, um, being able to be creative with your projects. Um, and it's really cool that you're able to give um, undergrads super meaningful projects. Um, they can kind of make that their own. Um, I think to wrap things up, I just wanted to ask what advice you have for undergrads who are interested in getting involved in research. Um, what advice would you give them and how they can get started? Uh, I mean, the first thing is a lot of people reach out by email and, you know, your email has to stand out in some way. Uh, we, we get so many of these and yes, uh, you know, whether you, you at least have to acknowledge, you know, what the lab does and, and so on. but there's, there needs to be something in that email that makes me think, ooh, I haven't seen that before. You know, shared life experience, your podcast, a link to your podcast episode on phages, so, something, you know, your hobby. Uh, the story that I, I tend to share about this is the first time I interviewed co-op students, I think I wound up with like 320 CVs. I wrote the thing too broad. 
I had to go through 320 CVs and pick people to interview. It's going to be a random process. You know, after a while, I gave up. I didn't know what the transcripts were. I didn't know what the courses here at Waterloo, or in this case at Waterloo, were. I, you know, I was sort of blindly guessing anyway. So eventually, I was just looking at the hobbies section and going like, yep, nope. Oh, that sounds exciting. I'd like to talk to someone who thinks that that is, you know, who does this. And at least I won't have wasted 15 minutes of my life because I'll have talked to someone about something I didn't know was there. But I also, the one that, that stuck in my mind most was cooking rice listed as a hobby. And that was, that caught me off guard. I didn't know cooking rice could be a hobby. Now, to be fair, I wasn't interested enough in cooking rice to then interview this person. So it didn't, it backfired a little bit there, but you know, really what, what lived experience, what about you is different from the, the hundreds of other emails that we get uh, at this stage. You know, make that clear, even if it sounds kind of corny to link your YouTube channel or where you review quilts. I, I don't know. I've never seen that in an email before. And maybe I'll click the link and maybe I'll connect something with with you and, and it gives you a better chance than not being read at all. Um, the other thing I'll say is that, uh, you know, pick a lab or, or reach out to labs. Um, you know, you, maybe you're interested in phages and you really want to work with me, but I can only take take a few students. And, and you're thinking, oh, I want to pursue this as my career. I got to get into a phage lab. Let's keep trying with Alex year after year after year. You know, get some time in the lab in, in almost anything within a scientific environment, in, in almost any field. Um, you, you're, the skills that you're picking up are skills that are transferable. And you may not believe that. You may think, I, you know, I've got to work on bacteria to be able to work on bacteriophages. The, the people who come to my lab have never worked on bacteriophages. They didn't have undergraduate courses on phage manipulation. They those courses aren't taught. So I'm going to teach you that stuff from the very beginning. But if you've, you know, learned microscopy because you're working on HeLa cells tagged with something, I don't follow the cancer field at all, but you'll have picked up some skills of the lab environments, what lab meetings are like, what graduate students are like, and, and you'll have learned a lot. Of, and you may find something that speaks to you even more or skills that are directly transferable. Um, you know, most people who wind up working on phages didn't didn't get exposed to them in their undergrad. And, you know, my postdoc didn't even do microbiology in their undergrad. She was a nutritionist and she then started working a little bit on the microbiome and now she's working on phages. You, you will be adaptable in your scientific career. So don't, don't be too wedded to the idea that you have to be in at the end of, you know, your first summer in a lab that does exactly what it is you want to do. Um, get, to, get to experience some, someone who's passionate about their research, some lab that does something that they're excited about, and it'll do you a lot of good. That's really great advice. Thank you for sharing it. I think it's super easy for like undergrads to get trapped into this mindset where, um, you know, they have to get into a perfect lab, but it's really good um, advice. So thank you. I mean, a lot of it also comes from people who really, really want to work on something human relevant. Uh, you know, a lot of pre-med students I know, they're like, okay, well, let me work in the immunology lab or the cancer lab or the virology lab that works with human viruses. But, you know, you're all competing for those spots and, and it's not that your training will be any better in those environments. You know, find a lab that you like or that likes what they do, you will get a lot out of it. Yep, for sure. Um, yeah, I just want to say thank you again for taking the time to be here with us today and tell us more about your research and, you know, give some good advice for undergrads. We really appreciate it and had a really good time talking to you. It was a pleasure. It's, professors are generally long-winded and, you know, eager to talk about their research for an hour or two.